And to go above 5,000 feet, you had to get a special clearance and have special instrument ratings. So I had never been above 5,000 feet. And I followed this railway line on my third on my third day of attempting to get out. And it in the Blue Mountains, there, it went through a tunnel. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. It is just after Easter as I am recording this, so that means around the world we have had hundreds of thousands of eggs dropped from helicopters at various Easter egg hunt events. I've only seen these on video, but they they certainly look the spectacle. Hundreds of kids being restrained as a helicopter comes in and hovers over an oval, and then a passenger upends sacks full of Easter eggs that rain down from the sky, and then a mob of people come flooding out and uh, race to pick them up. So, you know, who wouldn't love that? Helicopters and chocolate. What a great excuse to, to go flying. Things can get pretty crazy, though. In Texas this year, one of these egg drops attracted an estimated 10,000 people at a church event. They actually had to call the egg drop off as they, they couldn't clear the, the crowd off the oval. Keeping with worldwide events, World Helicopter Day this year will be on the 21st of August in 2016. It's on a Sunday. This is a chance to hold a local event or an open day in your town or city to invite the public in to look over helicopters up close and spread a little bit more understanding about the operations that we all do. Everyone that was involved in last year's day had a great time and we're looking to make it bigger and better each year. To that end, we need some more helpers working behind the scenes. I'm hoping that you as a show listener might be interested in helping out. That help can really take you know, one of two forms. You can just make sure that your company or flight school knows about it and is thinking about doing something on the day, uh, which is a big help and, and every bit counts. Or if you're really keen and want to volunteer some time and make some industry networks, then we're looking for just a, a few people to help coordinate things in your particular country. That might sound a little bit overwhelming, but this is really just meant to be a, a grassroots day, and for the most part, it just involves approaching helicopter operators and organisations and getting them to schedule their open day activities. There is more information at worldhelicopterday.com, or you can send an email to hello at worldhelicopterday, and any help would be very appreciated. Let's see how many people we can get to see a helicopter up close for the first time this year. Several items in the Lister mailbox at the moment. Uh, Thanks to everyone that sends in a message. Uh, A couple of quick ones here. Hi Mick, I listened to your Rotary Wing Show podcast. I found it hugely useful in feeling connected to the community. This is especially important for me as I'm based out of Norwich in Norfolk and I have to commute 2.5 hours to Leicester for my helicopter training. There is no local school here uh, where there is a bunch of pilots on hand to bounce thoughts off. So I only get to hear that when I visit Leicester once a fortnight or when I listen to the podcast. Thanks for putting together such a great and varied show. I find every episode fascinating and listen to them every time I commute for my lessons. So thanks for making that commute more enjoyable too. And that's from Stuart Rutherford. So thanks, Stuart. Stuart's training at Heli Center, and he's on the uh, the Cabri G2. 
And that just seems to be like a really common theme too that people are listening on their way to and from flying lessons. Tyson McGuinness from Washington State in the US writes, just finished listening to the latest episode today while at the Bell Academy. Funny you mentioned the triple two as we were just admiring one in the hangar this morning. Thanks for all the great shows, Mick. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Tyson. Really appreciate it. And last one today from fellow Aussie, uh, Peter Sargent. Hi, Mick. I just wanted to say that I love your show and especially enjoyed the recent couple of interviews with Pete Gillies. I've not long ago started my flight training with Skyline Aviation down in Newcastle, and though I'm not quite at the stage of autos just yet, it was great to hear Pete's experiences and advice. I also enjoyed your chat with Moggy a few episodes back. I wasn't even aware that that type of work existed. Keep up the great work. And Peter's referring there to the uh, the tuna flying with Moggy too. And exactly, you know, for many years I didn't even know that was a, an option in the helicopter world. So thanks, Peter, too. I really appreciate getting in touch. Today's interview comes out of one of those happy coincidences that just sometimes happen in life. And it started with a, a case of mistaken identity. When I left the Army, I, I did a little bit of volunteering for the Helicopter Association of Australia. And the president then was Rosemary McRae. Rosemary was a veteran of the Australian helicopter industry, and I thought she'd make a, a great guest for the show, and we'll, we'll keep plugging away at that one in the future too. So I started to track her down using Google, thinking, you know, there, there could be too many experienced helicopter pilots in Australia called Rosemary. In an industry our size, you'd think that would be a you know a pretty safe bet. And I found the contact details for Rosemary, and I'm using air quotes here, and I emailed her only to find out that I'd contacted the wrong Rosemary. Now, this Rosemary was actually the first female helicopter pilot in Australia, who, of course, as I now know, is Rosemary Arnold. Not only is Rosemary Arnold the first female helicopter, Australian helicopter pilot, she was the first in the Southern Hemisphere, and then the only Australian female helicopter pilot for the the next 12 years after she got her license. So it's very hard to do a a short bio for Rosemary, as she's done so many things in her career. So I'll leave that for the interview, which will split over two episodes. Rosemary's life reads as as challenge after challenge that she overcomes. So if you're dealing with any kind of adversity at the moment, then hearing her story will really redefine what persistence and the right attitude can achieve for you. This is someone that at eight years old sold her doll collection to finance balsa wood airplane models and had parents at pulled her out of school and didn't let her take out scholarships that she'd earned because an education was wasted on girls and their opinion at the time. Rosemary Arnold, welcome to the Rotary Wing Show. I'm really looking forward to this. You've got such a huge background, but as I was going through, I made a, a couple of notes here. So some of the things you've done, you're a mum, a fixed wing and a rotary wing pilot, a painter, singer, restaurant owner, the uh, the flying celebrant, uni lecturer, author, nanny, and a real estate agent. Is there anything I've missed out of that? Uh, who knows? I'm passionately fond of dogs, so I don't know whether you put dog owner. But uh, thanks for your interest, McClellan. I'm real happy to uh, chat with you, and you do good work. Oh, thank you very much. So there's a huge amount of stuff to cover, but we'll, we'll jump in and out. And yes, you go for it. You've done a couple of other interviews, I know, with um, podcasts a couple of years ago, and then recently the ABC too. So I'll also point people to, to go and listen to those, and we'll try not to double up too much. But... We spoke quickly off air there before. One of your first flying experiences was in a Sutherland flying boat from uh, Grafton, Sydney. 
and the pilot of that was uh, Patrick Gordon Taylor. And, and again, I, I wasn't really that familiar with Patrick's story, but yeah, I was hoping if you could share that, and then we'll, yes, we'll launch off from of there. Well, I'd just been pulled out of school. Um, girls weren't worth educating back in those days. And so I was 15 and pretty pouty, and mum and dad had to get to Sydney in a hurry, so we caught the flying boat, which was a new service. This was a, a, a Sunderland flying boat, and I heard later that Captain Brian Monkton had bought five of these on war surplus. He didn't want five, but he got five. And so this was my first flight, and I sat next to the porthole, and on takeoff, of course, the water comes straight over the porthole and you think you're drowning. But a very noisy plane, and in those days, everybody had to suck barley sugars to stop being sick, and so we're all sucking on our barley sugars when the captain came down and was nodding to everybody, and I asked him, could I go up into the cockpit? And so I spent the entire two-hour flight up sitting in the cockpit until we landed at Rose Bay. And I later found it was P.G. Taylor, so Gordon Taylor. And he was famous for flying with Kingsford Smith across the Pacific. And the engine, the oil was uh, getting low or leaking or something to that effect. You'll have to fill me in on the the exact details of that. But he did this heroic thing by climbing out on the strut on the wing and transferring oil from one engine to another in a tiny little school case what used to be called a Globex, I think was the name, a little tiny uh, brown suitcase he transferred that oil across. So it was my great thrill to find out who I had actually flown with later. And that was a story I'd, I'd never heard before until I heard you mention it on, on a previous interview. So, yeah. yeah, when, you know, if you look at it up on, on Wikipedia and, and, and trying to picture this happening, so, you know, yeah. they're flying through... He climbs out under the wing on the struts, out to this engine, which is inoperative on one side, and then back into the airframe, back out on the other wing to top up the oil on the other engine. I have a feeling it was the Ford Tri-Motor. Not too sure about that, but I think that previously belonged to the Polar Explorer. And he was the... His name escapes me. I I love him to bits. He had nine air crashes in the Arctic in the Antarctic, and he uh, he was first to take aviation down to the polar regions to, for exploration. I'll think of his name in a minute. Uh, anyway, he sold or gave, sold it for a dollar or something like that to Kingsford Smith, his Ford Tri-Motor, because it was a bit too big for him landing in the polar areas. Yeah, and I guess after that many crashes, you'd have to wonder what's going on, whether you keep Nine. up it. But... Yeah, he walked so many kilometres out from one of the crashes. I'd, you know, he was such an incredible person whose name escapes me. He was also a concert pianist, a very uh, talented man, uh, lived in England. There's a great book out by an author called Nash, and it's called The Last Explorer. Hubert Wilkins, that's right. That's his name, Hubert Wilkins. And Rosemary, after that flight, you kind of got busy with life again and you had um, you know, four kids by the time you were 26. Yep. 
and then I guess aviation comes back into your life and you talk about a, a, an airplane flying through your backyard and, and crashing and things like that in, in your book. But in terms of, of you, um, I guess it picks up again when you, you read a, a Women's Weekly article and there's a, a picture there of a, a female pilot in Australia. Yes, because there's so much prejudice against women, especially married with children. And I saw this photo of Senya Roby with her little daughter, Sue. And so I thought, goodness me, I didn't know women could fly, let alone somebody who was a mother. And that was a most unusual uh, prompting for me to go and learn to fly. And when I got out to the flying school, uh, there was Senya behind the counter. Okay, and what happened from there? So you walked up um, and said, you know, you want, you want to start flying? And, and what was the yeah, next couple of steps? I remember saying very, you will tell, I want a flying lesson, and you will tell me if I'm no good, won't you? And, you know, years later, of course, I, I learned that nobody is no good. They'll, there's very few people who haven't got the ability to learn to fly. It's pretty similar to uh, driving a car, I would think, especially these days. Uh, helicopter flying, of course, we both know is a little bit different. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, if you had all the time in the world, you might be able to, to get everyone through, but uh, it, it comes down to, yeah, I guess uh, finances and, and uh, yeah, whether people are, it's just the right thing for them or not, I guess. Well, when I'm talking to audiences, which I do very frequently over the years, yeah, they want to know, you know, how do you fly a helicopter? And I say, okay, everybody, pat your head and rub your stomach at the same time. And if you can do that, you can be a helicopter pilot. So that, that's the yardstick. And I guess we've got a helicopter audience, so we can geek out as much as we, we want to as we go through the, the helicopter side of things. But you were fixed wing initially, and I love this. Way. You, you did all your lessons because, again, you're married, you've got kids at the stage, you're... I guess parents and family were not particularly supportive of females going out and, and breaking new paths. So you did all this training uh, in secret. Yes, I did. And I actually soloed on my 28th birthday. And I thought that was a great time to tell everybody because, you know, I, I don't know. I just thought I'd kept it secret until I could prove I did it. And then when I told them I had done it, uh, all hell broke loose and, you know, you you're a terrible person for risking your life when you've got four children. So, you know, you hear that all the way along, or you did in those days. It must be really hard, though, because you, you must be on such a high having achieved that. and then. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, you learn to get over the negativities in life. And, you know, I'm a strong believer in positive thinking. I think uh, every pilot has to be because you can't doubt yourself, or at least... You do doubt yourself, but you've got to keep positive in your in your determination and your each facet of your flying. But when I was doing joyrides in the helicopter, there'd be a lot of uh, spectators at, say, a hospital fate, and I would have carried you know a couple of hundred in a day of joyriders. But every man had to say, "My God, a woman pilot will all be killed." Now, if you have that negativity pounding in your ears, you've really got to become a, a positive thinking person. And I guess you had elements all the way through your career with that, but definitely later on, we might touch on it then. You know, you have picked up a bit of a, a philosopher type bent and things there. But so we'll, we'll touch on that as we, I guess, we get to that part of, of your life, and, and especially in, in the US. Yes. 
I guess and we'll jump backwards and forwards here, but we'll come back to how you got into helicopter flying shortly. But you mentioned that the joy flights. I was just wondering, can you paint a bit of a, a word picture of someone turning up to a, a joy flight, you know, what you're wearing, what your helicopter looked like, and sort of paint the, the whole experience there? Well, I couldn't get employment because I was married with kids. So I sold everything I could lay my hands on and bought an old Bell 47J2A model uh, from the Helicopter Utilities Extinct Fleet in uh, 1976, became chief pilot of my own company in 1977, and set out on the joyride circuit. Because there was so much prejudice against women, and some jobs I had turned up for, and they'd say, you won't do at all, you know, you're a woman. So it was given to a guy with a blue shirt and navy blue serge pants. So I got tired of the blue brigade, so my daughters and I dressed in hot pink and the helicopter was painted with bright floral decor and inside and out. So it was a very colourful, fun thing to do and everybody loved the floral helicopter and the call sign was Tango Hotel Hotel, but we very quickly nicknamed it the Triple Happy Helicopter because it had three happy joyride seats. If you remember the configuration, it had a bench seat. Anybody not knowing what a Bell 47J looks like, it was what Elvis Presley flew in his movies, singing away and having three bikini-clad girls sitting on the bench seat behind. So that was uh, the, the type of thing. I had a long queue of people waiting to get on board, The two wide doors on the J model were excellent. One daughter would, the two doors would be opened on on landing and we'd pull three out one side and uh, throw in another three. And of course, each takeoff was an all up weight uh, configuration that changed. And I would see the three passengers coming towards me being led out by one of the daughters and I would shake my head if they looked overweight and, and say, sorry, you'll have to change one of those chubby ones for a skinnier one. And at times we'd have to offload fuel even uh, to keep going uh, with the joyride all up weight situation. Cameramen, uh, I did a lot of aerial photography work too, and cameramen are renowned for lying about how much their, their cameras and equipment weigh. Uh, and I had a lot of trouble getting off the ground in Barrel one day with the Channel 2 team. Because they were really, it was quite an overload. But you learn the tricks of the trade by doing running takeoffs and in uh, piston engines. You know, it's, it, if you keep on right rudder and don't lose your RPM with a, a left rudder, then you can get off the ground if you go round and round in a park. <laughs> That'd be something to to see, but uh, yeah, no, I just want because you know again all the way through you strike as a you know very I guess obvious and and actually you know getting screen and standing out, but this picture I've got of you is you know wearing and you didn't fly in the stilettos you, you say you but you used to put them up behind the uh, the headsets, but you know wearing gold boots or stilettos, this pink flying suit, a uh, pink mink mink jacket. Uh, a pink uh, mini moke as, as the car, and then the, the floral helicopter. It just would have been, you know, and this is the 1960s as well, it would have been really particular and, and something that stood out. Well, the stilettos were only used for, you know, a photo shoot, you know, once I landed. 
And as I said, I used to hang them on the uh, the headset hook. But uh, no, one of my daughters used to call me my mother the circus. So it was a bit like a circus act. And I had a great following of joyride passengers who used to follow me around to the hospital fates each year. And especially the disabled, I did a lot of work with them. But it gave them this whole new facet of movement. And I can remember one called Clem who had calipers on his legs and two walking sticks which he wouldn't part with so they had to be put up the front of the jay. And uh, I took him for a special flight once at Camden and we chased rabbits around the airport. Fantastic. Would have been a big smile on his face. Oh, yes. He was probably my favourite passenger. Yeah. Well, let's go back. I'll, I'll, we'll jump backwards and forwards a little bit, but I'll try and have some kind of structure there for, for people to follow along. So, you know, you've done your private licence, you've got some fixed wing time under your belt. And then at some stage you discover helicopters because it's obviously, you know, that wasn't something that was on your radar initially. And you buy a book, which is essentially how to fly a helicopter. So can you talk about those first helicopter lessons? And I guess... Yeah, I was a very active member from... uh, Before I flew solo, uh, I joined the Australian Women Pilots Association, that's AWPA, founded by Nancy Bird, the pioneer. And we used to have very active monthly meetings with a guest speaker in Sydney. And Randy Green, who was test pilot for Hawker, Hawker de Havilland, before it became Hawker Pacific at Bankstown, he was a guest speaker and he said to the audience of women pilots, go out and try a helicopter. I've only just done it myself and it's fascinating. And my first flight, the instructor said, try to keep it within this acre paddock, will you? And he said, I was up against one fence one minute and another fence the other. He said, but, you know, get at it. It's so different and, you know, go for it. And I was the only one that picked up on it and then went and bought a book on how to fly a helicopter, which is by the author Faye, and that was the only thing available for instruction. And when I bought the book from the Avma uh, bookstore run by Nancy Ellis-Liebold at Bankstown, she said, oh, a helicopter instructor has just been in here and left his card. Now, there was no flying school at all, possibly not in Australia, but certainly not in Sydney. Uh, Helicopter utilities used to train their pilots in-house, and Bob Larder was the instructor, and he was the only rotary wing staff member of DCA, now CASA. And so Bob had just left DCA, which left them with nobody, and he was setting up a privately owned uh, flying school. Turned out it was only five minute drive from my house, which was another amazing thing. And so when I'd had my first lesson with Bob, he, he said, you know, there's not another woman in Australia that has a license. And I said, no, I didn't know that. And he said, the boss has offered it to his sister, his daughter and his daughter-in-law, and neither of them are interested in doing it. So thinking that everybody was out there trying to be a first, I did my training in three weeks, which is 40 hours. It was very strenuous. And, you know, helicopter flying is very exhausting. Uh, Records, I think, show that it's three times as tiring as fixed-wing flying. And so I could only fly with Bob at 7 in the morning and 5 o'clock at night because of his other commitments. And so... um, 
you know, getting a babysitter for four kids at that time of the day and night, evening was pretty hard. But I did it. So, And uh, I was totally exhausted. I lost a ton of weight doing it. But when you get to the end of an achievement, there's sort of nothing there. It's The success is in the, the journey you travel. You're exhilarated while you're doing it. And then when you've got there, you say, oh, oh I'm here. It's got a, a flat feeling. Anyway, the media broke loose on me at that stage. Yeah, and that then goes into some of the, the public speaking and other things we'll, we'll chat about too. But, Rosemary, do you remember you know, roughly at that time then, so how many helicopters would have been in Sydney and how many helicopters in Australia? Oh, there were very few. My private licence number was number 10, but, of course, most of the pilots would have been commercial pilots. I could almost list off the private people that would have held a licence. There was the owner of Namco and his son. They owned this particular helicopter that I trained on, a 269A, which was Golf Mike Delta. Jack Zaplatel in Sydney had an old healer. Lang Hancock first had a healer up in the west, West Australia. They would have been like the private uh, pilot license holders, and I became number 10. But, um, as for the number of helicopters, they're extremely rare. Air traffic controllers didn't know what to do with you. So finally, I would talk to them and, and they'd say, look, tell us what you want to do and then we'll comply. So, you know, you'd be coming in on any... You didn't have to come in on a, a runway direction. You'd come in like Crossfield or something and say, look, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to land next to the tower and then air taxi to where I need to go. So they were quite relieved that we, that I or we told them what to do at the time. This is back in the 60s I'm going. I got my license in 65. The media really jumped on it and, oh, I kept it secret and didn't use the radio until I'd soloed in a helicopter. And so Bob and I were, we'd landed at Sydney Airport. The tower was in the middle of the field at the time. And he then said, okay, it's your turn. Talk to the tower. Get a clearance. So, of course, I, you know, golf Mike Bell, request taxi clearance to the base back in uh, Kalinga. And they just about all fell off their chairs and jumped to the window with binoculars. And I was air taxiing across the grass and Bob said, I'll take it, I've got control. He said, you better wave to these guys or we'll never get out of here. So I looked up at the tower and here were, it seemed like 12 sets of binoculars on me. And that's when the media got the news and then I, you know, I was asked for interviews and on TV and radio and all sorts of things. Yeah, it was a very exciting time, really, even though it was very exhausting. Oh, well done. And that obviously news spread overseas pretty quickly because you were picked up by the um, the, the Whirly Girls and got to tell The Whirly Girls, I didn't know existed, but they were formed, the international group for the women pilots, helicopter pilots around the world. And there was no privacy laws back then, so they had spies in every country. Uh, finding out which women were getting helicopter licences. And, you know, there'd be one in England who was Sheila Scott who flew around around the world uh, in the 60s. Anyway, 
I got a cable from Washington, and in those days, if you got a telegram, that you know, the telegram boy came on the bike, and he parked his bike at your front fence, and he walked up your drive, and you you always thought it was going to be bad news, like somebody had died. And so this came, and I'd never seen a cable before, but it was a cable of Washington from Washington D.C. saying, "Welcome, Whirly Girl Number 99." I then found it was formed for the first 100 in the world and the American girls were all trying to become number 99 because we are known by our number and I fluked on it. So this sort of gave me a bit of status too, you know, people call out, hello 99, you know, that type of thing in the aviation industry. And it was an engraved medal or what what did you end up getting for Oh, they sent you... They sent you a silver disc with, with your engraved number on it. These were all donated by the Hughes Tool Company, which was Hughes Helicopters. And they sent a letter covering it too, which was almost like a Ronio form letter. Much to my surprise, it was signed by the senior vice president of the Hughes Tool Company, and his name was Ray Hopper. And... I got the shock of my life because that was my maiden name. And so I wrote a thank you letter back to this form letter uh, and got his attention. And he wrote immediately back and said, I'm interested in the family tree, so I sent it to him. And so he always referred to me as his Australian cousin. And when I first went to the States on my, my first trip to go to a helicopter convention in 69, uh, the Hughes Company, through Ray Hopper, gave me a flight across the United States and back in a, a Hughes 500. And they, the, these two machines were the first off the assembly line for commercial use in the world. They had been, oh, they'd won the military contract in Vietnam and they were used as gunships. And I saw a whole lot of them smashed up and in, in their factory as I went there to pick up... Uh, to get on board the Hughes 500. And, of course, this was a big PR thing because they were going across to Florida to the Helicopter Association Conference, and so we did PR all the way across. And I was quite used to the media in in those days, and Hughes were so tickled pink with what I was doing because I was a Hughes fan having learnt on the 269A. And so I helped man the hospitality suite when I got there, rubbed shoulders with um, Sir Alan Bristow and F. Lee Bailey of O.J. Simpson fame, the lawyer, but he was the head of Enstrom um, at the time. And uh, an interesting little man called Bobby Suggs who owned petroleum helicopters. I think he had 100 helicopters. So my first visit to the United States, and I'm rubbing shoulders with this type of stature of people. I was... I really had stepped into a very strange world. Yeah, and what was the, the atmosphere there like? Because, you know, at that point in time, I'm guessing the helicopter industry in the US was sort of after Vietnam, everyone's coming back, uh, there'd be lots of experienced pilots around, and they would have been, you know, I guess that's why you were there too, is that the Hughes 500 would have been trying to enter the, the civilian market. Well, they were onto the, yes, the Jet Ranger, the Bell 206, had taken over the civilian market because there was a light operator, an LOH competition for a light helicopter to be designed around the Allison 250 engine. 
And so three of them were contenders. There was the Bell 206, the Hughes 500, who, which won the contract, and the other one was the FH 1100, the Fairchild Hiller. So for two years, the 500 was busy in Vietnam, but that was the time when the Bell 206 Jet Ranger took over the commercial market. And so then it was a bit hard for the 500 to, the Hughes 500 to break into the commercial market. I love the 500, it's my favourite. I logged 33 hours going across the States and halfway back. Uh, we crossed the United States in 20 and a half flying hours. And uh, it sounds like you did it pretty low level too. Again, oh, one of the, one of yeah, the interviews, I, you said you used to stop at, um, you know, Burger Shacks. And... The, the pilots with me would, would shout wires, you know, because we would be following uh, the highways and then there'd be wires strung across. And I'd never flown uh, to that extent at low level for so long. And, and into the night, too, I'd never done night flying in a helicopter, but we sure did on that trip. Yeah, <laughs> and was it then? I think so. You'd done a, a you'd done a turbine course before then. I think. Yeah, uh, I think I'm pretty sure I was the first woman to do the gas basic gas turbine theory course because it was Hawker Pacific's representative, a man called uh, Pip Morgan, and we were at a cocktail party at the Aero Club at Bankstown, and he said, "We've just got this uh, compulsory course starting. Would you like?" to come as our guest and, and do the course. And so I jumped at it and there were, I think the, the number of people in the first course were four lameys, you know, helicopter engineers, plus myself, I was the only pilot. So nobody at that stage, no pilot had done the course. This was the inaugural, uh, the test. The uh, exam, that you had to pass was compulsory for you to either operate, either fly or work on as a mechanic uh, on a gas turbine engine. And the one, of course, was the Allison 250. So the, the demo pilot from the factory, I think, did that one. And then you picked up the, the Hughes 500 hours in the US. But then there's a story, and I think you hit it, multiple problems with the um, authorities back in Australia in terms of actually getting endorsements recognised and oh, even yeah. your, your chief pilot... Um, uh, placement. I'd even done an endorsement on an FH 1100 in Sydney, and they I was denied an endorsement on that by DCA. It was very much an old boys club at the time, and the excuse they gave me was that the demo pilot from America was only able to endorse three pilots in Australia, and they were all reserved for helicopter utility staff. So even though I had done the hours and the time and that I was refused that, then I came back to Australia the next year. That was in 68. 69, I came back with 33 hours logged with an instructor uh, on that cross-country uh, American flight. And they refused me that too, saying there was no, um, no Hughes of 500 on the register here, so I couldn't have it. So I did get my advice, my endorsement on the Hughes 500 uh, much later. Right, back into the flying side in a, in Australia. Then, if we get, even if we go back to the Bell 47 and, and your, your time uh, there, Rosemary, 
you talk about the you mentioned your dogs early on. I think you said you're after your thirteenth dog. Uh, you're right elsewhere, uh, yeah. but yeah, you want to talk about I guess the first time you had to try and solo in the, the Bell Forty Seven. Yeah, you, you um, the Bell Forty Seven J model has the pilot seat up front and the configuration of the bench seat behind, so there's no dual control. So my original instructor Bob Larder, who trained me on the Hughes Two Six Nine A. He sat on the bench seat behind and shouted at me. And so then he got out and said, okay, off you go, fly solo. And I couldn't because the nose kept coming up and I'd throw it back on the ground again before I hit the tail. And I couldn't understand what it was, but the CFG was all wacky. I was far too light in weight to sit in the pilot seat without a sandbag up front. I needed 15 pounds of sand. And I then found that my Australian Terrier weighed 15 pounds and loved to fly. So she was tethered uh, and that's how we got over the problem. So D for Dog used to come on all the joyride days and we didn't have a problem after that. <laughs> again, I'm just picturing, you know, this, this helicopter and the, and the flight suits and the dog. So again, you would have been, you know, that that circus act and really standing out as you as you travelled around. That would sort of yeah, well, make for a The joy riders loved the dog because she's a very social dog. Smiled all the time and and talked to the the passengers. So that completely put passengers at ease. I've never had anybody sick in a helicopter. I, I use the the information that. Helicopters, you get a swish in the tail with turbulence, but you don't get the up and down turbulence like you do in an aeroplane. So I, I explain that to people, say, you know, nobody gets sick in a helicopter because there's no up and down movement. And uh, I've been very fortunate. I've, in the J model, I think I carried uh, that plus I operated an Instrum after that, and I carried over 5,000 passengers. So, but, it was fairly good uh, concentrated work. Maximum of passengers in one eight-hour flying day at uh, was the Dubbo Aero Air Show was uh, 276 in one day, and 75 takeoffs and landings in one day was my maximum. Yeah, that's a that's a busy day, especially when you're talking three passengers at a time uh, as a as a maximum. So. Uh, and a different all-up weight every time. That's the trick. You know, you you don't. You've got to compensate with every liftoff uh, for the weight you've got. Every five minutes, you've got a different weight load, different payload. Did yeah? Yeah, had some a couple of close calls. So again, another you know, you you go through a you know a power loss over Sydney Harbour uh, where you, you're able to get back into an oval there. But yeah. there's a couple other ones, um, yeah, in terms of, you know, stuck in, in bad weather. You mentioned you, you followed a, a road or a, maybe it was a rail line. But Railway then, line. Then yeah. it went into a tunnel. Can you tell us yeah. about that? <laughs> I had gone to the Bathurst Air Show and got stuck there with bad weather. We got totally rained out. I sent my ground crew home by road and I slept in the helicopter on the Bathurst Airfield right next to the windsock for three nights. And eating chocolate biscuits and drinking Fanta or something. And uh, I would get up early in the morning and try to follow the railway line through the rain to to get back to Bankstown, which was such a short hop. And finally, you know, you do get desperate, and you 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 tend to break rules when you're getting desperate like that. And we had a, a ceiling of like in those days it was below five thousand. 
And to go above 5,000 feet, you have to get a special clearance and have special instrument ratings. So I had never been above 5,000 feet. And I followed this railway line on my third, on my third day of attempting to get out. And it, in the Blue Mountains there, it went through a tunnel. So I climbed up and I knew I had enough fuel in that to get back and my back door was open, as you call it to get back to Bathurst, but I was desperate to get back to Bankstown. And so I went above 5,000 that day, and uh, I was above cloud, but uh, there were pockets all the way along, and uh, I just came down through a hole, and I knew I was safe because I knew I could get back to Bathurst. But that is the only time I have actually broken the rules, but I was very felt very guilty about it. It was so stressful that I landed at 7.30 at Bankstown and my lamey met me out on the field and, and I said, oh gosh, Max, have you got a scotch at the office? <laughs> <laughs> I never drink scotch, but under stress, I, I felt I needed a scotch at 7.30 in the morning. Yeah, that that, it's pretty stressful sometimes like that, but you get, you train for, for, you know, bad bad weather and bad situations. They're not dramas at the time, although they take a bit of a toll on you afterwards. And the other one you, you briefly mentioned too, and, I, and I'd love to hear what was happening in the cockpit and the, and the conversation, but uh, again, I think you were a part of a, a multi-ship job taking people to somewhere and again, you know, oh, rain squall came yeah. through and you had to sit there in the hover and just wait for it to, to pass. Yes, it was over the, uh, the water tanks up near Dural in Bankstown and they're a real landmark and it's a reporting point or it used to be, the dual tanks and I was the only piston engine helicopter in a group of probably six of us, the rest were jet rangers and so I got the last two, there were a whole lot of reporters going to a truck show at anyway, so they all got off ahead of me and then the rain, that was very heavy rainstorm, uh, it hit and I thought, I'm, you know, I'm not going to land because I was about two minutes from the destination. And so I just hovered at a thousand feet above the dual tanks until the rainstorm went round me. One of the jet ranger pilots actually got lost himself and he came in approaching from the west, which was a little bit of an in-joke with the rest of us. Well, I didn't get lost. I just stayed in that position until the rain went past me. But uh, one of the reporters uh, freaked out and kept demanding that I land. And I said, no way. I've got potato crops underneath me. I'm not landing in a farm and damaging a potato crop. And there's no need to land. I just have to wait a while. And I was in radio communication with the others. And uh, they were telling me, it's all clear now. So I just, as it as the visibility improved, I followed a road in, and we were quite okay. But he exaggerated the story terribly, and then wrote a scathing article in Modern Motor about me. He started the story: if I want to eat at a Chinese restaurant, I expect the chef to be Chinese, and if I go in a helicopter, I expect my pilot to be wearing blue serge pants and a blue shirt. And so, you know. And then he said, horses for courses, you know, it's not a women's job. And she came to bits and wouldn't land, and I was scared stiff, and she got us into all sorts of trouble. So I took him to court, actually, uh, for defamation, but I didn't 
get the court case heard because I didn't realise at the time I'd taken on one of the leading uh, publishing companies. Well, I thought the, the good part, you know, and again, that's, that's a terrible thing to, to go through, but the thought, the part that came out after that that I thought was actually, you know, a, a you know, positive outcome of that is you talk about early on, you know, turning up to, to sites to do work and, and being turned away and, and quite uh, having to, you know, break through the boys' club. But after that court case, or when a lot of people actually came forward, uh, the yellow pilots and, and that in support of you, that must have felt a bit of, um, I don't know, was it was that a bright turning point then? Did you feel a bit of indication? It, it was actually a very big turning point. When you're a private pilot and being a woman, you're treated like a bit of a toy. And then when you're commercial, you're taken a lot more seriously. But it's not until you put your money where your mouth is and buy your own helicopter and set up as chief pilot that you are given that professionalism and the respect. And that's what I had proven in the industry at that stage. So I was flying an instrument that day, but uh, when I landed, uh, I had a, all of those pilots came to court to get witness on my behalf. Even the meteorologist did. So you know to prove that I was totally in the right. But uh, you know, as I said, the court case was never heard. But when we got back to the the helipad in Sydney at uh, Piermont. It's not there now, but uh, we all landed and I had a great supporter in a guy called Bob Wilson and he was actually the first male helicopter pilot in Australia and he worked for Air Force Helicopter Utilities. But Bob Wilson was uh, was flying for Channel 10 at the time and he had a long ranger and as I parked the Enstrom, he came over and it was in front of all of these reporters he said, come on, Rosemary, hop in the Long Ranger, you fly. And so he just sat there and it was quite obvious that I also had the ability to fly a Long Ranger. And uh, he, it was to show the audience that, you know, I was not a stupid fool and that I could fly something a little bit bigger than a, a three-seated turbine, a, a piston engine, rather, the Enstrom. Yes, so that was interesting. We'll have to leave it there today. In part two, we'll continue with Rosemary's story next week in episode 45, including the campaign to get the first hospital helipads in Australia approved, flying DC-3s in Indonesia, operating a company in the US, helicopter weddings over Sydney Harbour, lecturing in aviation history, and the world's longest blind date, amongst many other things. In the meantime, if you want to find out more, you can visit Rosemary's website, at portferryweddings.com.au and you can also order a copy of her books there. And I'll talk more about Rosemary's books next week. We don't cover it in the interview, but Rosemary was awarded the 2012 Nancy Bird Walton Memorial Trophy for the woman who has achieved the most notable contribution to aviation in Australasia. Given that I was completely unaware of her achievements until recently, I'm really glad that I can capture some of her story and share that with you. The interview intro outro audio this week was provided by Zeus Lehel from the A-Star that he flies for news gathering in Los Angeles. Thanks, Zeus. If you want to be part of the show and can submit some audio of your helicopter or even just a voice message, it's really easy to do on your phone with any recording app. You can email those to feedback at rotarywingshow.com.
www.thinkandgrowthpodcast.com. If you haven't subscribed yet on iTunes, then that is the easiest way to get new episodes. You can also sign up on the website at rotarywingshow.com for email alerts. On the blog post for this episode, episode 44, you can see photos of Rosemary and links to her books and other interviews. The sponsors for today's episode are trainmorepilots.com. If you're looking to improve the online marketing for your aviation organization, you can start there. And as a tip for today, if you operate a website, which let's face it, it's pretty much mandatory for any kind of organization in 2016, then you want it to load as fast as possible and more and more load fast on slower mobile connections. You can run your website through the form at tools.pingdom with a P, so tools.pingdom.com for information on where your website is slowing down. For more tips like this, visit trainmorepilots.com. That is it for today. I've been your host, Mick Cullen. Happy aviating wherever you are, and I'll catch you shortly in episode 45 of the Rotary Wing Show.